Okay. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. John Duffy. You, this is another episode of Better. And um, Julie Duffy, my usual co-host, is not with me, but I am super excited that I am joined here today by the brilliant Jessica Leahy, author of the book I am holding up to show her that I just read now with all the little <laughs> markers and tabs. With sticky tabs the, in it. Oh, I, you, I've already used it as a reference tool. Uh, it is called The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Hi, Jessica. How are you? So well. I'm so happy to be talking with you this morning. I'm, I'm thrilled to be talking with you. Um, I, I need to give you about 30 minutes of, of accolades, but I'll keep it brief, okay? So <laughs> okay. your first gift, your first book is The Gift of Failure, right? Was that your first book? Yep, that, it was. So that, that is, had to be a New York Times bestseller, yes? It was. I was, you know, so grateful. So grateful. That's, and it should be, it is a staple in my work and my practice. I love it so much. Um, you are a teacher, you're a mom, you're a wife of a man who I have to admit has been my spirit guide through COVID-19. Uh, oh, he's going to be so happy to hear I'm that. I'm secretly stalking Dr. Tim Leahy um, on, on Twitter constantly, and I've, D, I've written a couple of questions to him that he's been kind enough to answer, oh, so you can okay. please thank him for me. He's on an interview right above me in his office right now. I can hear him rumbling away up there. The, the, the Leahy's are changing the world right <laughs> underneath our noses here. Um, so your book, The Addiction Inoculation, comes out tomorrow, correct? It does. Yes, April That 6th. is super exciting. So there's something for somebody who has uh, taken a shot at writing a self-help book and, uh, and getting one out, a couple out there. Um, you have threaded the needle that I have to give you credit for. Um, most, uh, I've read a ton of these books, and this is this is something between a self-help book, a memoir, storytelling, and some of the best advice and information on something we need so desperately to know about that um, I am blown away. I did not think I'd have fun reading a book about addiction, but I actually did. So thank you for that. How'd you pull it off? So my very favorite things to read are at the intersection of memoir and research based nonfiction. I just love them. Um, there was a book earlier this year by Lulu Miller called um, Fish Don't Exist. It was sort of, it, it's just these, the idea of sort of an examination into the stuff that some people have to deal with in their lives and finding out and being big research geeks like me, like I just love the research. I have the best job in the world where I get interested in a topic and then my job is to read everything and then put it all together, figure it out. Um, luckily, I'm married to someone who, you know, has had a lot of statistics education. Um, my son now is a mathematician and economist. And so the stats we get, I have lots of experts around for stats. And, and just translate it for the general public. And, you know, what's really fun is I get, when I used to write a column for the New York Times called the Parent-Teacher Conference, people used to ask me all the time, how do you figure out what 
people are interested in. And I said, I don't. I'm just I just write about what I'm interested in and hope that it that it resonates. And honestly, both books were books that I wanted and couldn't find. They were books that, um, you know, I'm an alcoholic with almost eight years of recovery. I've been a teacher uh, for 20 years and the last five were in an inpatient rehab for adolescents. I just wanted to understand what the phrase substance abuse is preventable means. I wanted to understand it in the concept of my own kids. I wanted to understand what went wrong with the students that I teach and how to make it so the kids don't end up in that classroom. Um, and then this is what came out of it. And, and there was a lot of stuff I had to deal with because so much of what happens with substance abuse is we keep a lot of secrets. And I just realized as a kid who grew up with the family with a lot of secrets, that the one way to keep my kids from repeating the mistakes I made was to be as transparent as possible. So that's what I do with my readers and that's what I do with my students and my kids and just hope that that pays off. <laughs> well, yes. And, and the early part of your book uh, is disarming in a way because you talk about your own story, which I think to those of us who follow you is well, I'll, I'll speak for myself. A bit of a surprise that that you uh, first of all were uh, um, addicted. Uh, you're an alcoholic, a recovering alcoholic, mm -hmm. and you, you you use these words. I noticed, like you're not, you don't shy away from the word addict or addiction. This is important. Yes. Well, and but I think it's also a little. I have to explain that because I think as someone, as a writer, as a journalist, I know that especially in the last year, two years, the um, style guides have changed as they should to be person oriented. So, you know, in the same way that we don't talk about an autistic person, we talk about yeah. this person with autism. And we're supposed to be saying, you know, I am a woman with a substance use disorder. And that's fine. I think, you know, I think that's great. I think from the perspective of helping people, uh, you know, not putting a stigma on a person, all that sort of stuff. But on the other hand, I think I, I'm not a fan, and I'm not saying this is a euphemism, I'm just not a fan of prettying up words in order to make them more palatable when, especially when we have to talk about hard things. I think, um, I just, I'm just not a fan of that. So yeah. for me, and, and that's fine. I think all of us have a very different path. I happen to, the word alcoholic really does resonate for me, mainly because I was never allowed to say it as a kid. I was never allowed to say, you know, I think this relative of mine, you know, drinks too much. That was forbidden. So for me, calling it like it is, is almost like reparations for what, you know, I wasn't allowed to do as a kid. And I think it's really important for me. And I need for my kids to be as comfortable with that as possible, because part of what happened to me is the story of how to prevent it happening to them. So I, I yeah, there's a lot of reasons for it. And you try coming up for the title of a book that uses substance use disorder. It's not, it doesn't roll off the tongue quite as easily as addiction. So no, that yeah. wouldn't be the that no. wouldn't be the sexy title we're looking for here. That's for no. sure. No. Um, your kids, you're right, are not that are not irrelevant to the process. You also no. don't shy away from the idea that part of the reason you wrote this was as a bit of a cautionary tale, or at least an informational tale for them. Yeah, cautionary tales really don't work. Actually, um, you know, scare tactics like the you know scared straight kind of thing. What does work is information, real information given to kids in a developmentally appropriate way and helping, giving them, you know, uh, ways to refuse, giving them options, giving them exit strategies and helping them be 
<laughs> helping them not feel like they need to be artificially better, that they need to be themselves, but more They're, that they, you know, need something in order to be worthy of taking up space and air in this in this world. And, you know, I talk about that in the sense that, you know, for me, the drink that I crave, if I'm going to crave a drink, it's the drink I, I used to get to have before going to a party so that I could overcome the imposter syndrome and I could overcome the, you know, who, who the heck am I to go have dinner with all these fancy people? Um, and that, you know, took the edge off. It gave me the liquid courage in order to be able to walk in there and feel like I was enough. And, you know, for me, I want my kids to feel like they're enough without that. And so uh, getting at why my kids, uh, what my kids need from me and need from the world in order to feel like they are enough without that drink, that sort of gets at the the root of this whole book. So um, I am a clinician and I work primarily with teens and tweens and that feels like maybe the primary drive of my career is trying to get kids right. to believe they're enough without something like a, a substance. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems at times like an insurmountable task, especially given the culture we're in that feels so right. permissive around use. Well, and, um, and not just that. I mean, I think kids are, are proxies for our report cards as, as parents. They're yes. our, you know, I was just tweeting about someone was talking about, um, you know, choices in education. And I said, the one thing I was, it was Lori Gottlieb tweeted about college. And I said something like my symbolic attempt to, you know, have college be my kid's choice and to make it really clear that it was his choice was that I said I would never put a sticker on the back of my car because his choice of where to get an education is more important than my ability to boast in a parking lot. And all of that stuff. In fact, Julie Lithcott Hames, who wrote How to Raise an Adult and this new book that I'm going to hold up for you right here called, it comes out the, tomorrow, same day as mine. It's called Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. I'm going to be giving yes. this every high school and college graduate. It's like 500 pages. It's the Bible of adulting. And she and I talk a lot about what we do. And when you distill down what Julie and I do with our lives and our writing is to help kids have an inner voice and help them project that outer voice to the world so that they can be responsible, competent, effective members of our world and our society. And that really is at its essence what we do, right? That's, that is at the very heart of it, our job is to help kids figure out who they are and then be that person out there in the world. I agree 100%. Um, and then I, I feel like I should challenge that a little bit with mm -hmm. something that you cite in the book. You, sure. you cite that maybe 40% or so of what contributes to addiction in our young people and in all of us is genetic. Um, it, can we create enough of that self-worth to overcome some of those genetic predispositions? So um, genetics, according to Mark Shook at, at, um, at USC, are between 50 to 60 percent of the picture. And there's Ooh, actually I was so far off. No, 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 it's fine. It's actually <laughs> we you know, it's as with most things around substance abuse there, there's not you know, full-throated agreement on any one thing. There are camps, which is the other reason that this book is a little, you know, I'm nervous going into tomorrow because, you know, I, my home has been education and parenting for so long. And yeah, there are camps and stuff, but in substance abuse prevention and in substance abuse treatment, um, there's just so many siloed camps where you're either in or you're out. And so anyway, Mark Shuket 
60 to 50 to 60% is genetics and the rest, a lot of it is um, trauma. And there's this analogy that gets used a lot, which is horrifying and totally appropriate, which is um, that genetics is the bullet in the gun and sub and uh, trauma is the trigger. So uh. it can be that bullet can be sitting there in the gun for forever and not get pulled. So my husband has the same amount of um, of substance abuse on both sides of his family. So I've got it on my mom and dad's side. He's got it on his mom and dad's side. And, you know, he drinks like a normal person. So genetics is not destiny. And, um, you know, figuring out, and I, I talk in the book about the sort of the scales of justice, old timey scale, where risks are on one side and protect, pre prevention or preventative factors are on the other side. And the heavier your risk side, the heavier your protection side is going to have to be. And some of the students in my in my rehab classroom just had risk piled upon risk piled upon risk. And, you know, like a 10 out of 10 on an ACE uh, adverse childhood experience um, quiz. And almost no protections. So the one thing I want this book to be for parents is empowering. I'm not interested in shaming. I'm not interested in guilt. What I'm interested in is let's look really clearly at what our kids' risk factors are. And that includes the ones that are prevalent in our society, like divorce and separation or adoption. Let's talk about those things so that we can heap tons and tons of risk on our prevention on the other side of the scale to sort of overcome that, whether it's genetics or whatever trauma we're talking about. I love that. And we'll, and we'll get to that in a moment. But first, yeah. I'm going to ask you to be my family therapist for a second. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, so my father was when I was born, I was born on my father's third anniversary in AA. Oh, he got wow. a cake on he got a cake on my birthday every yeah. year. Yep. Um Jessica is, is the beautiful thing that's happening right now is Jessica just walked away because her <laughs> pug, she she has this awesome pug who I don't know what's going on with the dog, but so cute. Just being, oh my just god. Being a pest. The dogs, it works best if the dogs are in with me because they're attached to me, but something's up with this ancient, deaf, toothless animal that we adopted in an old age, and I don't know what it is, so I'm just having to entertain her while I'm talking to you. It, I feel like I'm in the room with you <laughs> hanging out, which is great. Um, so, so okay, here's the deal. So my, my, I'm, I, my father's an alcoholic. He sits all of us, there are four of us, down. Um, when we are like 14, 15 years old says, Hey, do anything else you want in your life, but don't drink period. Some of us listen, my older brother and I never once drank. My mm -hmm. younger brother did. And, um, it, it was a contributing factor without doubt. Although I think there were several of them, as you're kind of pointing out to the fact that he took his life at 34. Um, and so, um, so I'm going to put you in a very awkward position because I don't think I've asked a therapist this directly. Mm -hmm. Why? I ask myself frequently, why was I resilient to this in any way? And my younger brother not, right? You know, how is that possible in the same, we've got the, some of the same genetic markers, mm -hmm. right? And we're raised in effectively the same family. How is it possible that, um, and I didn't mean to ask you this, by the way, and put you in this corner. I hope it's not no, too no, bad No, 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 I love these corners. These corners are fun. <laughs> okay. This is where I learn stuff. All right, all right. So what do you think? What do you think the difference between uh, younger brother Tom and I really is? Well, um, so when people talk about genetics for substance abuse, obviously we're not talking, there is no one, you know, genetics, there's no one gene that we can go in with like CRISPR and say, woohoo, let's knock that out and now we're all good. And on top of that, of <laughs> right. course, there's 
epigenetics. So the epigenetics are, for those people who don't know, epigenetics are sort of the environmental factors that affect the way genes express themselves. When we talk about genetics for substance abuse, we're also talking about personality traits because some personality traits are tied to genetics as well. And so, you know, I'm thinking, for example, about my dad's family. My dad um, is meticulous and orderly and, and very sort of tied to the details. His sister is sort of a really big picture, more laid back person. And his brother, who is now deceased, was very erratic and chaotic and just all over the place. And if he had lived, who knows where he would have ended up. And those three people all have the genetics for substance abuse, um, but not all of them had an issue with substance abuse. So, you know, there are certain personality traits that are, you know, do kind of predispose, you know, that need for adrenaline, that need for just that a lot of novelty, a lot of just craving chaos. You know, those people do tend to be a little more likely to drink Um, anxiety, especially in women. And then there's the male female thing as well. So for example, in women, women are more likely to drink due to anxiety. In fact, more in terms of women with anxiety, and I'm one of them, if you look at women with clinical anxiety, they are more likely to drink in an abnormal way than in a normal way. So anxiety is a big component of this. Um, and then on top of that, you you have to heap on things like, you know, birth order isn't a great example, but all the environmental stuff that goes along with, you know, having been raised as the oldest or the youngest or, you know, whatever. So, you know, there's, it's such a complicated picture that it's so overly simplistic to say genetics, 50 to 60%, yeah. but that's what we've got right now. And I think as our understanding of genetics um, improves, you know, already, you know, I'm just about to dive into the new Isaacson book on CRISPR, on Gene. Oh, I'm so excited. Um, just, <laughs> finished, uh, just finished reading um, uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee's book on genetics as well. You know, it's, and there's a reason these books are 600 pages long, because it is such a complicated picture. And epigenetics is only just starting to color in, you know, the gray areas. I think it's, I think we're going to learn a lot. And I think we're going to learn a lot very, very quickly, you know, with between fMRIs and our very rapidly expanding knowledge about genetics. I think we're going to learn a lot quickly. And, you know, I think there's a very good chance that in the next 20 years, we could have something that solves substance abuse disorder for, you know, a sliver of the population. But I don't think there's going to be any one solution that's going to come down the pike and it's going to be like, oh, well, that's it. it. We're done with that. Because I think some of it comes down to if I just don't feel like I'm enough in this world, then, you know, I'm more likely to look for solutions to make myself feel better about who I am and my place in this world and make up for whatever it is it feels like I'm lacking. And that's just not just about genetics. That's yeah, about parents, right, that's about right. environment, that's about all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, before before we move on I, I, to, to the next thought, I kind of feel like circling back to the gender difference, right? Because sure. I've noticed that in my client population as well, um, and may or may not be an, a fair question, but what do you make mm -hmm. of that? What do you make of that difference between the way um, substance use presents in men and women? Well, to get to, let's go back to the really. Um, so when you look at, especially, let's talk about adolescence first of all. Let's uh, let me just preface all of this by saying, when we talk 
about substance use and we're talking about men versus women, most often we're talking about adults, right? Because most research is done in adults, not in kids, especially when it comes to, you know, illegal substances. It's a little bit, yes. you know, a little difficult to go and give kids booze and then look at them under an fMRI. Um, so we're mostly talking about adults. Adult brains and adolescent brains, as you well know, are so completely different. You know, we used to think that kids' brains were done developing at 10 because they were the adult size. But, of course, they're undergoing the second of two major reconstructions and matures, uh, maturation and growth and connectedness. All these sort of things are happening. And that's not done until the mid to early, early to mid-20s. So a whole bunch of stuff that that just acts differently in the brain or has a reduced risk in the brain as an adult that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about adolescence. Okay. So when we talk about kids drinking, first of all, girls and boys have very different um, physical makeups, right? So boys have much more water in their bodies. Girls have much more fat. So that right off the bat is going to affect how alcohol and things like marijuana affect us because people with less water in the body aren't going to process alcohol as quickly. So from right from the get-go, body type is going to determine, um, you know, just how alcohol affects you. On top of that, girls have less of an enzyme that breaks alcohol down. So given not just body type, but given the, pre- the lack or the reduction in this particular enzyme, girls will be drunker at the same, um, you know, alcohol by volume in the blood than a boy. Then on top of that, there are just we're just treated differently in this culture, right? So girls have to do a lot more putting on the mask, becoming someone else in order to, you know, not appear, you know, not appear like they're whining or like they're, they're, they can't be, you know, they can't be too aggressive. They have to be aggressive, but not too aggressive. And they're just, just a lot of masking. And then when we think on top of that, about people who are more marginalized, like we're talking about intersectional stuff here, like a black woman has to do a lot more masking than a white woman. So then there's sort of levels of all of that that's going on. So, and women are more likely to have anxiety than men, Um, whether or not it's tied to that. I can't, you know, this is a causation correlation morass that I can't even begin to get into. Um, On top of that, there's some really interesting stuff that came out in the research around um, this thing called pluralistic ignorance. Turns out that When we guesstimate how much other people care about drugs and alcohol or how much they drink, we tend to overestimate. So if you ask your your average college student, how much does your roommate drink? They're going to probably overestimate. Now, in response to that misunderstanding, that misestimation of how much other people care about drinking or drink themselves, boys will actually raise their drinking level in order to match that. Whereas girls, if they're uncomfortable with sort of raising their alcohol level, will withdraw. And that withdrawal from society, community, whatever, then feeds into whatever might also be happening around depression. And so there's so many things that we have to take into account when we talk about gender differences, not just physicality, but um, emotional state and, you know, sort of what women versus men deal with, what girls versus boys deal with. Um, It's a very complicated picture, but there's some fascinating research that's just starting to really come out you know, with the advent of people like Lisa Damore and Rachel Simmons and all these wonderful people who are writing about girls and, you know, Michael Thompson and all the other wonderful people who write about boys were, I think for a long time, we were afraid to think of them. We were, we, we were kind of like, oh no, they're the same. We can't think about these differences because then that's sexist, which is just bananas. They are different and it's okay to talk about those things. So, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so a little consultation for me here. So I yeah. work with all these kids, and when I think broadly about mm-hmm. substance use and abuse, and if I, I can be working with a Jessica, a, a 15-year-old girl or boy um, who is going through even mild depression, anxiety, um, self-esteem issues, and it seems like substance use is almost an assumed part of their lives, if not Mm -hmm. now, in the very near future. And this concerns me so much because it feels different than it did when I started this gig 25 years ago. Um, And if I remember right in your book, uh, the hard line you're encouraging parents to take, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, hey, certain you know, su- substances are, many of them are illegal. Some of them are off limits until you are, are they, you are 21 and they are legal. Um, and part of me is thinking, wow, man, I don't know if those, if those <laughs> talks are going to work yeah. with these kids yeah. I'm working with. Okay, so here's the funny thing about what you said. Number one, you said when there seems to be more of an assumption that everyone's, I'm just going to use the everyone's doing it excuse that, you know, a lot of kids hear, than they were when I started, which was however 20 years ago. So number one, the we know for a fact that the rate of um, substance use, alcohol use, uh, everything but vaping, every use except for vaping, um, and that's mostly nicotine we're talking about there, but also THC, um, has been going down for the past couple of decades. So we're actually, right, it, it, just before the pandemic hit, it started to plateau, which was a little worrisome. And I think it's going to take a little while for us to see sort of what's happening there. But alcohol and drug use is down among adolescents at one of the lowest rates that it's been in a very, very long time. So, Which I think many I, of us don't know, right? I mean, wouldn't, right. You, wouldn't you say most of us would say... Oh, no, it's up dramatically. Right. That's huge. It is. Interestingly, here's something interesting, though. Among adults, um, (laughs) THC, marijuana, and uh, psychedelic use is up. Uh, So everything's down. Well, that's not true. Uh, During the pandemic, alcohol use among adults has gone up. And um, alcohol companies are, I just was tweeting today about the fact that alcohol companies are starting to say, well, now that you can get alcohol takeout, let's hang on to that you know, loophole in the regulations and let's keep that that going because there's been a boon in alcohol sales, a huge explosion in alcohol sales since the beginning of the pandemic. We are definitely drinking more. Well, I'm not, thank goodness. And definitely eating more. I'm 10 pounds heavier than I was going into the pandemic. So we all have our ways of coping. But among kids, it's down and hopefully it will stay down. Hopefully it will keep going in the right direction. And I think so, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, however, I think think that uh, the other thing we need to think about is this uh, pluralistic ignorance I was just talking about. So let's say you have an eighth grader, let's say you have a 13, 14 year old in your office and they're like, look, you know, everybody's doing it. You know, it's just it's just how it is now. It's not like I can escape it. Well, the best thing a parent or you or a teacher or some other mentor can do is say, look, here's the deal. Actually, it turns out that by the end of eighth grade, only 24 percent of kids uh, admit that they've had a sip of, dr- of of beer or wine or some sort of alcohol. So everybody's not doing it. It's actually only 25% of kids right. are doing it, one in four. So 
that combating that that pluralistic ignorance, that overestimation of how much it matters to other people, I think is really important. And when you flip all that on its head, the reason why that's so important is that with every year a kid delays their use of drugs and alcohol, their their risk of lifetime of having substance use disorder during their lifetime goes down. Again, correlation causation issues there. But I am going to say this: adolescence and birth to age two are the two periods of time with the most dramatic changes going on in the brain. Plasticity, where we are um, acutely sensitive to stuff that's going on in the environment. The, the World Health Organization and a bunch of other organizations have said, look, there is no safe amount of alcohol during pregnancy, despite some recent stuff that's come out. Um, and we wouldn't give a zero to two-year-old alcohol. We don't give them hot toddies anymore. So why do we think that it's okay suddenly to, that adolescents are just going to drink? And the problem is with that fatalistic attitude is what causes parents to say, well, you know, they're going to drink, so I might as well let them do it here in my house. I'll take all the keys and it'll be safe. Yes. Okay. Right. But, or, and here's the other big one is... I want to raise my kid like one of those European kids where moder they just learn moderation. And, you know, I, I'm just doing what the Europeans do. Okay, well, here's the problem with that. There's a couple problems. Number one, alcohol and drugs do harm to the adolescent brain that is um, really a much lower, if not uh, eliminated risk when they're adults. For example, the hippocampus in a kid who does, who chronically uses pot is smaller than the hippocampus in a kid who doesn't. And that's important because the hippocampus is the seat of memory formation, especially emotional memory. So when you think about all those really heightened, vivid memories from adolescence, those are the ones I'm talking about. And when we talk about short-term memory, um, hippocampus, hippocampus, hippocampus. And if it's smaller in kids who use pot chronically, probably not a good thing. Number two, parents who have a consistent message of no, not until it is legal, fewer, they will, they are more likely, far more likely actually to have a kid who will go on to have a substance use disorder. Again, correlation causation, because maybe it's the parents who have those firm rules that are less likely to have the genetics, who are less likely to have alcohol in their house, opportunity, blah, blah, blah. Number three, um, <laughs> if you're the kind of parent who says, well, kids are going to do it anyway, might as well do it in my house, that's called, that permissiveness runs, is antithetical to the message of no, not until you're, you know, old enough. And regarding that European myth, the highest rates, the highest per capita consumption of alcohol in the world is in the European Union. They have some of the highest rates of alcoholism in the entire world. So why we're modeling our own parenting around our, our parenting practices regarding alcohol, modeling it around a model, uh, around a, a community, a uh, um the European Union that has the highest rates of problematic drinking in the world, especially not just that binge drinking, their rates are, are incredibly high. Um, why we're modeling it after that, I'm not sure, except it comes down a lot to, it comes down for me anyway, to that romanticism. I've bought into it. You know, I love the idea of having these continental European children who get a sip at dinner. It seems so mature and cosmopolitan and blah, blah, blah. The problem is, is that I'm increasing my child's risk of having substance use disorder during their lifetime. And that's huge. This was a huge revelation for me reading that, 
reading your book. Um, I actually gut checked this a bunch of different times because I carry that same romanticism about yeah. that. I think a lot of us do. So, yeah. um, well, here's so, the problem so, though. And you just said yes. it so beautifully. So many parents gut check things and don't evidence check them. And so the problem is, so for example, only 57% of schools in this country have a substance abuse prevention program in place. And of that 57%, 10% are based on evidence. So many of the substance abuse prevention programs that we've gone with sound great, like the Scared Straight programs or the early iterations of D.A.R.E. They sounded like they would work great, right? Right. They, they didn't and they don't. And so what we need to do, and we do know what, what works. And so if we could start thinking, and that's why this giving kids information around like, no, it's only 24% of eighth graders who admit they've had a drink of alcohol by the end of eighth grade. If we could actually start relying on evidence instead of our gut, that would be fantastic because we do a lot better because a lot of the evidence-based stuff is available and all we have to do is start adopting it in our schools and at home. But Jessica, if I talk to my 14, 15, 16-year-old about alcohol, about drugs, about weed, about all this stuff, I am open to talking about it, then they're more likely to use. This is what I hear no, all the time. No, absolutely not. It's not true. Just in the same way that talking about sex doesn't make kids go out and have sex. Um, you know, there's ju it's just not true. Go read, you know, Peggy Ornstein's Girls and Sex and go read Peggy Ornstein's Boys and Sex. Both really hard conversations. And I can tell you from experience, um, you know, they used to scare me to death. The, the substance abuse uh, conversation used to make me want to throw up, mainly because I had to reconcile my own crap plus my family's stuff. The sex conversation scares the piss out of me still. And, you know, what I need to do is write a book about that so that I could get more comfortable with that. But the real the reality is, is that the more we talk about this stuff, the more our kids are likely to trust us to have conversations about it. And substance abuse and drugs and alcohol are a conversation we have often in this house. Um, and and when I say often, my kid, my 17, so my kids are 17 and 22. And my 17-year-old, um, joked recently that he was talking with his bio, his biology teacher took a poll in class and asked the kids to raise their hands if their parents ever talked to them about substances, about drugs and alcohol. And my kid laughed and said, when doesn't my parent talk to me about substances? And, you know, that just has to be the reality in our home because we can't afford to not talk about it. My kids are much more likely to have substance use disorder over their lifetime. And there's a saying in recovery and here's the, I think this is a great saying for, for parenting these kids as well, not just high-risk kids, but kids who are at normal risk, um, is that once you have some information in recovery, it's a lot less fun to get high or drink afterwards. It's, and people who are in recovery who fall off the wagon and, you know, relapse say this all the time. You know, I, I had been in recovery. I'd learned some stuff. But, man, it is so much harder to enjoy that high when you have a little bit of information. And, you know, that's sort of the lead that I hope to take with my kids, this transparency. And, you know, even in the very hardest, most challenging form, I I, re I often recommend that people go listen to, there's a podcast um, by Dak Shepard called Armchair Expert that's a lovely podcast. And he was sober for 16 years and he relapsed on opiates last year and uh, did and lied to everyone about it and was living this horribly isolating secret and came clean, so to speak, in his podcast episode called Seven Days, when he was back to not 16 years, but seven days of sobriety. And 
talking about it and being honest and being transparent and getting rid of the shame and getting rid of the guilt and moving forward from where we are, I think, is the only way that we're going to have any success uh, preventing, you know, the next generation from landing where we've landed. You know, I think you just answered my my next and maybe one of my last questions. Um, I listened to uh, Dax's podcast. I love that podcast. I love your that episode, episode of that podcast. That episode, the seven days episode, just I've listened to it a bunch of times because the bravery it took for him to come clean to millions of listeners um, oh. who rely on him as their model of sobriety. I don't know how he did it. It must have been. I don't know how he did it. It was incredible. Uh, but. But even as someone said to him, you are as as great of a representative for sobriety as you are with 16 years. You're an even better model when you have to admit that you relapsed because relapse is often a part of recovery. Um, and you're able to come clean about that and not be ashamed. And I totally agree. I think he did a huge service to lots of people who um, needed a role model in that. Agreed. And, um, and, and and I think it probably for, for a different podcast, for a different discussion, um, did a lot for masculinity, right? And vulnerability oh and yeah. shame, right? I mean, my, really yeah. impressive. Um, uh, so um, if I'm a parent and I'm listening to you and I right now, uh, I can imagine some of my parent clients thinking, how do I even start then this conversation? I do hear uh, Jessica is, is abundantly clear. I have to have these conversations. Where do I get started? What's the first thing I say? Do I say, read her book? Do I say, listen to Dax's <laughs> podcast? <laughs> What's the next well, thing? The thing I learned from gift of failure was that, um, I, so I hate being told what to do. And so when my editor was like, no, we need, you need like such concrete examples. They're practically scripts for people. I'm like, really? And she said, yes. And then I found out after talking about gift of failure and being on the road as a speaker for like six years that she was absolutely right. So for this book, not only did I write scripts, I ordered them from, you know, talking about kids, about substances starts with preschool and all the way through, you know, once they're out uh, doing college. And, you know, it doesn't start with conversations about, you know, injecting heroin. It starts with conversations about, you know, why we don't swallow the toothpaste, but instead we spit it out. Why do we wash our hands? Why um, why does this medication sitting on the countertop have mommy's name on it and not daddy's name? And should daddy take that pod, that, that medication? Wow. Those are the, or, you know, as they're learning their letters, can you find the letters of mommy's name on this label? And do you think a medicine that has mommy's name on it is something that you could take too. What if you're taking the same, what if it's an antibiotic for me and let's say you need an antibiotic, could I just give you mine? Those are all conversations that you can have with kids when they're very, very young. And then as they're, as these conversations grow and as kids grow, the subjects change. Kids start to notice things like why Uncle Ted has to go smoke on the front porch at Grandma's house instead of smoking inside the house and having that conversation. Um, and for me, what I wish is that it had been okay to talk about a relative um, being drunk at a family function or, um, you know, I, my Parents also had friends who used drugs, and I those conversations at least were very out in the open, uh, mainly because my parents wanted me to be safe. And those conversations were such a relief, such a, a, a release valve for 
all the curiosity that kids have and feeling like they're topics that we can't talk about, that's part of the problem. And if you think kids are too young, you should know that in houses where kids, where there is substance abuse, kids as young as three know the difference between alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverages and can recognize brands. So as young as three. So the idea that we they're too young, we should be protecting them from this information. It makes no sense to me. I, I use an analogy in the book. I used to work in um, in infectious diseases in HIV re research, pediatric HIV research. And there was this one kid and no one was allowed to talk to her about her HIV status because it was a secret. This was 1994. And um, it turns out that she knew the whole time. She revealed to a nurse that she would prefer that no one tell her parents that she's sick because she didn't want them to know. So the idea that we're keeping something from kids and that our talking about it is dangerous, it's the exact opposite. Our talking about it, our gaslighting kids and telling us, telling them that what they perceive is not what they perceive, that's the dangerous part. Um, having our children believe that we love them based on their performance and not just for who they are, that's dangerous. So I think understanding that talking about stuff is not going to make them do it. Um, it just keep the sex ed conversation in mind. It's not like you're going to tell them that sex happens and they're going to be like, Ooh, I got to run out there right away and find someone to have sex with. It right. just doesn't work that way. And to punctuate your point, there really isn't an age at which you should start these conversations younger than you probably think, yes? Yeah, so most kids who start using drugs, so, well, there's a couple things you need to know. Um, among people who have substance use disorder during their lifetime, 90% of them started using before age 18, and most of them started experimenting in middle school. So if we're waiting till middle school, we're waiting too late, especially mm -hmm. to talk to the kids who are more likely to go on to have a problem. So, you know, it's funny because... I've been talking to so many parents. The more I talk about my own recovery, the more I hear from parents. And the more people are hearing that I wrote this book, the more emails I get. And I can, I can tell you right now, the line I get the most in an email was my 12, 13, 14-year-old has been um, using pot, and I'm just shocked that it would start so young. But the problem is we shouldn't be shocked because that's when it begins. That's yes. when starts. Experimenting with substances starts in middle school. And to pretend any differently is just doing kids an injustice. Absolute folly. Um, so one, one final thought. One yeah. thing that um, kind of uh, blows me away about this book um, is that in the end, through all the anecdotes, through all the science that you walk us through, um, in the end, it feels hopeful. You believe that oh, yeah. we can mitigate this, right? You believe oh, that yeah. as parents and as families and as the adults around these kids, we can really truly inoculate them from addiction, from substance abuse. Yeah. So there's this really interesting analogy at the very beginning of the history chapter where I talk about the fact that there's the one of the beliefs that one of the ideas that's out there among anthropologists is that um, there used to be that idea that it was bread that helped form civilization, that we needed to start farming in order to make bread. And that required, yeah. uh, you know, stationary or, you know, permanent civilizations, blah, blah, blah. There's also this idea, however, that it was 
feasting that at, we were hunter gatherers in these small groups. And then we had to start sort of collaborating with e- with each other um, in order to sort of make life a little bit easier. And, but the problem was, is when you start having hierarchies in civilization, it creates angst. And there's this wonderful book called Angst that talks about this. And so there's actually a new theory is that it was beer that allowed more complex civilizations to develop. And when you look at history, when you look at big, you know, the American Revolution, for example, you know, for a lot of intents and purposes, the, America was born in taverns. That's where all the conversations happened because there's the conviviality and blah, blah, blah. So it's not that drinking is bad. For 80%, 90%, well, really 90% of the population, it can be this great thing that can, you know, sort of increase um, sociality, you know, as being social and overcome a little bit of angst and help us be, you know, have fun with our friends. For the 10% that includes me, unfortunately, it's something that I can't control. And I'm never going to be able to drink or use drugs like a normal human being, right? So... I think what's really important to understand is that if our kids are getting from us what we need, which is what they need, which is helping them be enough from the get-go, giving them early intervention for things like social ostracism or um, early academic failure, or when kids are aggressive against uh, toward other kids, getting them early interventions for adverse childhood experiences, then we can go a lot further towards helping kids not suffer from the hardship they've endured. In fact, Michelle Borba has a new book out called Thrivers, and it's about her entire career has been leading up to this one book where she looks at all of the things, all of the elements that make kids resilient and allow them to come out of difficult things stronger than they went in. And there are elements that we can give kids, and they're all in my book, uh, that will help them be resilient when things get difficult. Help them know that they are enough in this world. And and I really do believe that we can, you know, there's going to be 10% of us where it's going to be more problematic. And um, But if we can get kids to, let's say, 18, we can lower their lifelong risk of substance use disorder back down to 10%, which is what it is in the general population. But with each year before that, it's, you know, it's higher and higher and higher. If we can get them to 18, if we can protect their brains so that they can develop the way they're supposed to and they can get to a place where they can start to make more mature um, decisions about risk and about novelty and about, you know, ways to boost their dopamine that are healthy. And um, then, yeah, I really I really am healthy. I mean, there's some caveats in there in terms of, you know, my 10 percent of humans. But um, but I think we're even even my 10 percent. I think we're going to do OK. I think we'll we'll make it. <laughs> I think we're yeah. going to be all right. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, uh, her name is Jessica Leahy. The book is The Addiction Inoculation. Um, you've got to get it and you've got to get it now. Um, Jessica, thank you so much for joining me here. You're, you, you've given us so much to work with. You have cited some of my favorite books from some of my favorite <laughs> authors. So th- th- there's a bibliography that I will I should include at the well, end. Well, actually, all this. if you go if you go to JessicaLahey.com under the speaking menu, there's a big button that says Download Speaking Bibliography, and it's like my favorite greatest hits having to do with parenting, education. I'm adding a whole bunch of stuff about substance abuse. So there's all it's like the greatest hits bibliography because I get asked for these references so often. I just made a huge bibliography, and everything is hyperlinked to the source. So it's, it's super easy to use. Well, you are a joy and an inspiration. And, and I really believe, and I've got to tell you, I, w- I went into your book super skeptical 
And you I have convinced me. I'm super skeptical. I wasn't even going to write a chapter. <laughs> I wasn't even going to write a chapter about college because I'm like, well, forget it. That's a foregone conclusion that kids in college are going to drink. Turns out that's not true either. So I surprised myself many times over when doing the research for this book. Well, you are wonderful. I think you are looking at another bestseller here. Um, I, I encourage every single person listening to pick up this book now, today. And um, Jessica, thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to ask you in front of everybody who's listening to come back on this podcast sometime soon. Oh, I would love that. I would mm. love it. And I want to see, what, what's the pug's name? Her name's Coco. She came with that name. Coco, green, thanks for green joining us Mountain as well. Pug rescue, green Mountain Pug Rescue. They just rescued a whole bunch of pugs from China and they're going to need homes. So go look at Green Mountain Pug Rescue. You can get yourself an old, deaf, toothless dog just like this. <laughs> Outstanding. <laughs> Have a great pub week and I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you.